perhaps the fear of man is taking hold in your heart in some ways and your, your witness for Christ is correspondingly diminishing. This word from Jesus, it is the reminder you need to redirect your fear away from man toward God himself to a true, believing, reverential fear. Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. I'm Steve Hiller, and uh, Jonathan, often in Scripture, we read something to the effect of that we are to fear God. Uh, that's stated in a number of different places in a number of different ways. But, but what does that actually mean, to fear God? Well, it's to recognize Him for who He is, that He is our Creator and also our Judge. It's a, it's a reverential fear. Uh, for the for those who know God through Jesus Christ, it's not a trembling, cowering fear, but it is nonetheless a respect. But in, in the passage we're going to be looking at today in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus wants us to think clearly about where our fear should be directed. And, and often we'll be inclined to fear those around us, fear the, the bad opinion of other people in the, in the world. And for the believer, that could make us rather sheepish about being open about our faith and our allegiance to Jesus Christ. But the Lord Jesus would remind us that we have good reason to have a reverential fear of God. A reverence for him should drive our behavior in the world. Well, let's look at this today in Matthew chapter 10. We're looking at verses 16 to 42 as we continue our message, The Kingdom That Divides. Here is Jonathan. We must have a reverential fear of God, a recognition that He truly is God and we answer to Him. But if we do that and if we entrust ourselves to Him, He cares for us. And fear of Him, well, it casts out all other fear. He cares for the sparrow, a little bird of no account, no consequence. He numbers the hairs on our head, admittedly a more impressive feat for some than, than for others. But who else knows the precise number? I don't know if you're familiar with the hymn through all the changing scenes of life. You may not be, but it captures the dynamic so well, and it came to mind. Listen to how it puts this wonderful truth. Through all the changing scenes of life in troubles and in joy... The praises of my God shall still my heart and tongue employ. O oh, make but trial of his love. Experience will decide how blessed are they and only they who in his trust confide. Fear him, you saints, and you will then have nothing else to fear. Make his service your delight He'll make your wants his care. Fear him, you saints, and you will then have nothing else to fear. Isn't that good? He cares for his own, for those who fear him and him alone. And it is with that truth firmly in mind that Jesus now speaks the sobering words of verse 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. If we fear God more than people and acknowledge Jesus and speak his word, whatever the cost, Jesus will acknowledge us before the Father, acknowledge that we belong to him again on that final day, declare that his blood has covered our sin. 
But if we will not acknowledge Jesus before people, if our fear of people is greater than our fear of God, we will have reason to fear on that final day. And so this matter of who it is we fear, this matter of whether we will acknowledge Jesus before those who despise Him, it is actually, ultimately, a mark of our salvation. It is a mark of whether we truly belong to Him. And that becomes, it's very sobering to think about that, isn't it? Because the pressure is certainly mounting at the present time for us to keep a very low profile at, as Christians. Do you feel that at work? Do you feel that in your community, in your classroom? among your peers. The, the pressure is high not to make too much noise, not to kind of stand out in the crowd where standing out as a Christian is an increasingly uncomfortable thing to do, but Jesus, He lays it on the line here. Our fear of God must be far more compelling in our heart of hearts than our fear of others who cannot really harm us in the final accounting. I was so encouraged this week to read an interview given by Kate Forbes, who is the Cabinet Secretary for Finance in Scotland. At the age of 30, I gather that she is already seen as a serious contender for the role of First Minister of Scotland. In any event, she was asked about her Christian faith in a BBC interview, and she said this, just hear this stellar response to the journalist. She said this, to be straight, I believe in the person of Jesus Christ. I believe that He died for me saved me, and that my calling is to serve and to love Him and serve and love my neighbors with all my heart and soul and mind and strength. So for me, that is essential to my being. Politics will pass. I am a person before I was a politician, and that person will continue to believe that I am made in the image of God. Isn't that good? Now, those words could sink her career. An affirmation like that is very politically uncomfortable in a place like Scotland, as it would be throughout the Western world, but isn't that a wonderful response? And it's just the right one, given how high are the stakes, according to Jesus Christ. It shows where her fear is directed. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. I wonder, friends, if, if our fear, if your fear is directed toward the right person today. It's sobering to consider that, isn't it? We will naturally fear those around us, of course we would, fear their bad opinion, their scorn, their rejection, their opposition, fear what they might do to us, frankly, for honoring Jesus and holding high His Word. Brothers and sisters around the world face economic and physical cost for that every day. We generally don't face that here in our context, but who knows what is down the line for us? Have we learned to fear the one who is judge? and the one who will care for his own? Do we believe that if we fear him, we truly have no one else to fear? For some of us, we simply need to remember that today. Perhaps the fear of man is taking hold in your heart in some ways, and your, your witness for Christ is correspondingly diminishing. You, you see it among friends and family, colleagues and peers, and this, 
this word from Jesus, it is the reminder you need today to redirect your fear to the right person, away from man toward God Himself, to a true, believing, reverential fear. As you go out into the world, a hostile world, as my witnesses, says Jesus, be unafraid, unafraid of them, even as you fear God. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths and a message called The Kingdom That Divides. Hope that you will stay with us. We'll get back to this message in just a moment. But if you ever join us late or you maybe have to leave early, maybe you've missed a broadcast and you want to find out what you missed, you can always come to our website. You can listen online. Our website address is EncounterTheTruth.org and you can stream the program or download an MP3 for free. We also want to make it easy for you to listen on the go, and you can do that if you have the Encounter the Truth app. It's new, and you'll find it by going to your favorite app store and simply look for Encounter the Truth. It's a great way to connect with Jonathan's teaching whenever it fits your schedule. Again, just go to your favorite app store and look for Encounter the Truth. All right, let's get back to the message. Once again, here is Jonathan. Thirdly and finally, be realistic. I think we can easily imagine a kind of fairy tale outcome where we as Christians will be such nice people that everyone will just love us and that following Jesus will lead to, you know, harmony with everyone around us because we're so very, very nice. But Jesus wants to be really clear with us. He wants to dispel that myth. He wants us to understand that he didn't actually come to bring harmony in the first place. He, he came to claim a people and a kingdom from among a race that had turned against him in rebellion and sin. Battle lines would be drawn before a banquet of peace would be set out. Just notice how intentional Jesus is in dispelling that myth. Verse 34, do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that to be quite a shocking statement as I read it. I think it's, it's sometimes interesting just to play this game, to ask of a verse, would I have written that particular verse myself? Would I have ever come up with that kind of a statement if I were writing about divine truths, about the work of Jesus? And I'm sure I would never think to write that, Jesus came to bring not peace but a sword. Surely Jesus did come to bring peace on earth, didn't he? Surely that's exactly why he came. Well, evidently not, according to Jesus himself. He came not to bring peace, he says, but rather a sword. And then it gets more surprising. The sword will not simply be drawn on the battlefield. It will be drawn in the home. Just look at this, verse 35. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own households. I think these are actually some of the most difficult words of Jesus to digest, and when their reality hits home for us as his followers, their reality is one of the very hardest things to accept. For some, you will come out of another religion and choose to follow Jesus Christ, and you will know at the outset that this decision to follow Jesus, it will alienate you from your family. Following Jesus will mean perhaps being disowned, and, and so you count the cost at the outset. You know what's coming. That will be the experience of some listening today. I'm quite sure of it. But for others, this experience, it comes as a later shock. 
Perhaps you're from a Christian background. You had believing parents or grandparents, but as you follow Christ and some of your relatives choose not to follow Christ, you discover now there is a tension. There is an animosity. You find that there is a resentment or an unfathomable hostility, and it blindsides you. Where did that come from? Others will come to Christ from a nominal religious background or a secular background. Perhaps, you know, your, your family, you thought of them as open-minded people, seemingly willing to accept others, whatever their philosophy or their creed. But when you decide to follow Jesus, that is one thing they cannot accept. And suddenly you're, you're an outsider and you're stunned by it. It's, it's, it's painful totally unexpected. Why would following a master like Jesus Christ, who is so good and calls His people to live in an upright and a loving way, why would this generate such animosity, such anger? Shouldn't your family be pleased? Shouldn't your parents be delighted? But they're anything but. Well, we may experience shock at such things, but we can't say that Jesus didn't warn us. The animosity we might feel is an extension of the sinful heart's animosity toward Jesus Christ. The human heart in sin hates the thought of being subject to the Lord Jesus. The fallen heart, it revolts against that idea, it rebels against it. The unregenerate heart, remember what the Scriptures teach us, is set at enmity with God. And if we name the name of Christ and belong to Christ and seek to live for Christ, it will provoke something within those around us. We will feel the force of that animosity and that rejection even from our near and dear. And so that it raises a very significant challenge for us. And Jesus, he doesn't hold back here. Notice these deeply challenging words, verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, we have all kinds of obligations within this world, all kinds of loyalties that are, are right and appropriate. We have loyalties to family members, loyalties that are important and God-ordained, we should add. We have loyalties to institutions, to customers perhaps, to companies, loyalty to our country. We might take a pledge of allegiance to a nation, and we will have other loyalties besides. But Jesus wants to be clear, our highest and our ultimate loyalty is to Him. We must love Him more than our nearest and dearest. And if there comes a day when we must face the choice between allegiance to family and allegiance to Him, He must come first or we are not worthy of Him and His kingdom. There are various costs that could be set before us for following Him. It, it, you know, he, might, he might outline for us the cost of our time or energy or affections, a, a lifetime's service sacrificial financial giving, true love toward Him. But He could hardly name a higher cost than this, the potential cost even of family ties. And Jesus knows at this point that He is actually asking everything of us. He recognizes that, doesn't He, in verse 39. And He promises us at the same time that any cost will be worth it, will be amply repaid within the kingdom. He says this, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus knows what He's asking of us. He, he knows 
what he's calling us to do. He is calling us to be willing to give up everything for him. He is calling us actually to give up our, our very lives, to lay them before him. And he says, if we will not do that, if we insist on holding tightly to this earthly life and its commitments and its connections, we will actually lose our lives because we will forego spiritual life and a place in his kingdom. But if we are willing to lose our very lives for him and for his sake, we will gain true life as we trust in him. I, I'm conscious that some among us, some listening, will be in the midst of the experience of tension with family or alienation from family. And it, it's because simply you follow Jesus Christ. Maybe they've actually disowned you, disinherited you. Maybe they've made it clear that you're something of an outsider now. You're, you're strange to them. You're frankly an embarrassment. Well, may I say to you, please be encouraged today. Jesus told us it would be this way. And you need to know that and remember that as you feel the painful force of alienation and rejection. In losing all things for Jesus, you are truly, actually gaining all things. In giving up your earthly life for the Savior, you are gaining eternal life. This is painful. I can only imagine the kinds of circumstances you may be going through. But it is worthwhile, Jesus tells us. This loss is truly, actually gain. Others among us haven't experienced anything really of this yet. May I say to you, I'm so glad if you haven't, but be ready should the day come. Don't be startled if you encounter this. Don't, don't be thrown. Don't be destabilized. It is part of what the Lord calls us to. And if you're weighing up whether to follow Jesus, consider this question very, very carefully. Jesus insists that you consider it. Will you love him even more than your near and dear? Are you willing to do that? Are you prepared to do that? If not, he says, you're actually not worthy to follow him. Will you lose your life to find true life in him? Consider that carefully. Weigh the cost. As we close this passage and close our time, Jesus does have a final word for us on this subject, and a word that should encourage us if we would follow him. You know, from what he said so far, we could think that we disciples of his, we're, we're truly of little account and the negative and the abusive responses, the reactions we receive in the world, they, they matter very little to anyone. But Jesus wants us to know that in truth, the response of others to us, his disciples, to us, his messengers, to us, his representatives, it matters hugely to God. And this encouragement, if we will hear it, it is actually enough to keep us going, to keep us persevering whatever response we receive. Notice with me the power of these closing words, verse 40. Jesus says, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Here in Ottawa, in our nation's capital, we understand the significance of receiving representatives properly. If a kingdom on the other side of the world sends their diplomat here to meet with our prime minister, the welcome given to that diplomat represents a welcome ultimately given to that monarch. That's the true significance of our welcome in diplomatic circles. 
You and I, we go out into the world as representatives of the King of Kings, even Jesus Christ, and how people treat us, unimportant as it may seem in the world's eyes, insignificant as it may seem, the Lord notices it. He takes it personally, actually. If we come in the name of Jesus, speaking the word of Jesus and offering the gospel of Jesus, and if someone accepts us and accepts our message, they accept Jesus himself. Isn't that remarkable? And that's what Jesus means in verse 41. If we come with the prophetic message of Jesus and the people receive us and our word, they receive that message, well, they receive salvation itself. If we come proclaiming righteousness, living out the message as people made righteous in the eyes of God through Jesus and seeking to live righteously, and if others respond to that believingly and positively, well, they receive the gift of righteousness by faith as well. They receive a righteous person's reward. But this principle, it extends even to the seemingly mundane details of their reception of us. Verse 42, whoever gives one of the disciples of Jesus these seemingly insignificant little ones in the eyes of the world, whoever helps us even with a cup of cold water, Jesus won't overlook that kindness, even as a kindness extended to him. There will be a reward for a kind reception to the disciples of Jesus Christ. How people respond to us, how they react to us, it matters to Jesus. And it matters for eternity. And you know, friends, in the midst of all the challenges of following Christ in today's world, that dignifies our witness. I think it comforts us in difficulty but we must make no mistake, it will not be easy representing Jesus in a hostile world. The message of his kingdom, it divides people. We need to beware those who would harm us. We need to be unafraid of them, even as we fear God. And we need to be realistic and forewarned about the kinds of response we will encounter. May the Lord strengthen us for costly witness in an increasingly challenging context. Let's pray for his help as we close. Our Father, we thank you that Jesus is so clear with us, that he warns us and he prepares us. Thank you for the help of your spirit to meet each circumstance we face. Thank you that you care for us and you know us and our treatment in the world that matters to you. Help us to be unafraid of those around us and to fear you and you alone and so be faithful witnesses for our Savior. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Jonathan Griffiths here on Encounter the Truth, wrapping up the first message in our series, Living as Kingdom People. Well, if you want to go back and listen to this broadcast again, you can always do that by coming to the website, EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, Encounter the Truth is a listener-supported broadcast. We're able to stay on the station because of your generosity. And as you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to send you, as our way of saying thanks, a book entitled Through Gates of Splendor. And Jonathan, that's an interesting title. What's the book about? Well, it's a very wonderful story, a sad story, but also a triumphant and joyful story about the martyrdom 
of five young missionaries in the 1950s, American missionaries in Ecuador, who sought to reach a particular tribe that were an unreached people group with the good news of Jesus Christ. And they they went and sought to build bridges with this particular group, longing to serve them by by telling them the good news of Jesus. Uh, But these five young men uh, were killed in this attempt. And through Gates of Splendor is the story of of this tragedy told from the perspective of the young wife of one of the the men, Jim Elliott, who was killed. And it, it tells a story of loss, but of hope and of the precious value of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's a very inspiring story. Many people have been inspired to serve the Lord Jesus Christ in sacrificial ways through this story. And I trust that it will bring great encouragement to you as you read it. Well, we want to send you a copy of this book, Through Gates of Splendor, as our way of saying thanks for your support this month. You can give a gift online by coming to our website, EncounterTheTruth.org, or you can call us at 833-99-TRUTH. That's 1-833-998-7884. Or again, the website, EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, thanks for listening today. And I hope you'll join us next time.